Well, it's my privilege this morning to introduce uh, to you our, our guest speaker for the uh, first um, Sunday of our missions conference. This is Dr. Stephen Um. He is the pastor of City Life Church in Boston, actually founded the church, what, 10 years ago, and is a uh, New Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary as well, and, uh, and uh, just a great guy. His parents are from Ireland. Uh, he was originally uh, Mick Um, but they dropped the Mick, so uh, now it's just Um. So any, but, uh, there, there, is a, there is a Mick Um. There is a Mick Um, indeed. I didn't know that. So we're, we're glad to have him with us, and you know, I just, one of the, some of the things I've, I've just loved getting to know about Stephen as we've been talking is I just love his heart for the region, for the gospel, for planting gospel churches, and uh, I'm excited to, uh, to hang out with him more and get to know him more, so uh, this is great, but we're so thankful that you can come and speak to us, and, and just great to have a Pleasure. Presbyterian, like-minded brother yeah. here to preach God's Word to us. So can we just welcome uh, Dr. Um... Who would have thought that a Baptist would kind of reach across the ecclesial aisle and, uh, and to welcome a Presbyterian? So, uh, so it's my great a privilege to be here. Uh, it's, it's really uh, indeed my pleasure to be able to worship with you, to be able to, to sing that, uh, that hymn that was led by the, uh, the music director and, and, knowing, and knowing that your preacher is preaching through the Gospel of John and, and tying all of those uh, expressions uh, together and just to be able to see that continuity and one unified vision in mind, um, you should give a thanks to God uh, for, for your church, uh, for your pastor, uh, for his staff, and, and all the great work that, uh, that God is doing uh, in your midst. And, and it's just my pleasure uh, to be able to participate uh, in that. Uh, I've been given the assignment to, to preach uh, an expository sermon from a particular text talking about God's heart for church planning and uh, why God is a, a missional God, if you'll allow me to use that term. Uh, and I had the opportunity to, to take people through a very, very brief uh, survey of what this might look like uh, for uh, South Shore Baptists. But you see, in the West for about 1,000 years, for, for a millennium, the relationship that Christian churches uh, had to the broader culture was a relationship known as Christendom. That's not Christianity. It's known as Christendom. That is, the institutions of society Christianize people and therefore naturally would stigmatize people who are not part of the Christendom culture. It ended up being more not like a, a, uh, a center set model, but more like a boundary set model where, where clear distinctives were created, where you knew if you were inside the circle or where you, whether or not you were outside of, of the circle. And though people were Christianized by culture during this period that we, know, we have known as Christendom, they were not regenerated or converted by the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the church's responsibility to be able to speak into people's lives into a vital and living understanding of their relationship and union with Christ. So there are advantages to this, of course, of being in a Christendom culture, but there are big, great disadvantages. Uh, one of the advantages was that there was a common language for public moral discourse. So you had a point of reference, you knew what was good and what was evil, and it's much harder to, to discern that uh, now in our culture. But the disadvantage was that Christian morality without gospel-changed hearts often led to hypocrisy, if not cruelty, in our ugly history. So think of how the small town in, the, uh, small town in Christendom would treat somebody who was an unmed, unwed mother because she was marginalized and she was alienated. Now, again, I'm not speaking into the morality of the issue. The Bible is pretty clear about those things. That is not my point. But to say that when you live in a Christendom culture, the ruling class that has uh, the, the ruling credibility and power and leverage would often misuse that power when it came to the weak. And therefore, it's no surprise that for the last so many decades, the decline of Christendom has accelerated greatly since the Second Great War. 
Now, an Anglican uh, missionary by the name of Leslie Newbegin, uh, who has been very helpful in this regard, although I would disagree with him on some theological issues, he, he was part of the whole uh, ecumenical movement, but what he recognized was when he went to India, when he was in mission in an overseas a world and in a culture, he clearly knew that the Indian culture was foreign to his British culture. And so he knew that in a non-Christian society that he needed to contextualize, he needed to do mission, he needed to understand the prevailing cultural story of that society. And so that was pretty obvious. This is what all of the, the missionaries would do. If you're in Senegal or if you're in other locations in Africa or in Asia, you don't just simply go in there and try to force feed Western American hegemony into a culture. That is the last thing that, that those folks there uh, would want or need. And of course, there's a great amount of anti-American sentiment because we as Americans, you know, we've known to do that, uh, unfortunately. And And so what we need to do is we need to understand that there is a different culture. The the culture needs to be uh, uh, respected, although we need to challenge uh, some of the things that we find in that particular culture. So when when Leslie Newbegin left after 30 years to go back to the United Kingdom, what he realized was that just as he was doing this contextualized uh, engagement with a non-Christian culture in India, he now needed to do that in his own culture that had become post-Christian. And so some churches certainly do evangelism as one ministry among many. But I think that what we need now is to be able to look into our culture and to produce and to develop a missional church. Michael Wolfe in The New Yorker about a decade ago said this, There is a fundamental schism in American cultural, political, and economic life. There's the quick-growing, economically vibrant, morally relativistic, urban-oriented, culturally adventuresome, sexually polymorphous. And so you might assume at that moment, okay, that's Boston. That's all the kind of uh, the progressive uh, uh, urban context. And the ethnically, uh, uh, not-so-ethnically uh, nation of the small-town nuclear family, religiously-oriented, white-centric, other America with this diminishing cultural and economic force. There are two nations. Now, I want you to be very, very careful that you do not say, because you live in this great town, in this region, South Shore, in Hingham, to think that you fall into the second category, because you don't. You see, our entire region, whether you're in an ethnically diverse, racially mixed uh, social setting such as Boston, or whether you're in Hingham, we both live in a post-church, post-Christian, late modern culture. We no longer have categories for understanding what is right and wrong. We no longer live in the context of Christendom. We're no longer there. And so what we need is not more evangelistic churches, although you'll see in a moment that I I do absolutely support evangelism. We need missional churches. We need a church living in mission. In other words, it is quite possible for us to believe in the gospel, that is to be gospel-believing, but everything that we do, our thought pattern, our behavior, our, our worldview, for those things not to be shaped by the gospel. It is quite possible for us to be gospel-believing, but not necessarily gospel-shaped. So we need to have a robust theological vision that will be able to bring our gospel doctrine and theology, let's just call this confessional theology, and to be able to weave it in with what we will call practical theology, what we do in practice, our ministry, we need a theological vision that's going to bring these things together. We can't separate what we know to be true with the the affections of the heart and the practice of the will in the life of a Christian and in the life of the local church. Those things need to be bridged together by a deep reflection of understanding all of the deep implications of the gospel for life and ministry. So what I want to to do here in the time that I have remaining 
is to answer the question, what is the church supposed to do with the gospel in the culture that we live in? How did Paul understand the gospel within the context of his historical setting and social location? What is the church supposed to do with the gospel, especially in an environment that does not understand the doctrines of the gospel or in a culture that is militantly opposed, at best indifferent to the things of the gospel? How do we do that? I think there are three ways. Number one, we winsomely proclaim it, the gospel. Secondly, we uh, holistically live it. And thirdly, we strategically extend it. The first is to proclaim the gospel by way of evangelism and preaching. Let's look here in verses 19 and following. I want to concentrate primarily on verses 21 through 23, but let's look at the context. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You see, if you receive a stoning, you're not supposed to live to tell about it, right? I mean, it's like saying, because that was a form of capital punishment for Judaism, just as crucifixion was a form of capital punishment for uh, the Roman Empire. That is why Jesus was crucified and not, uh, not stoned and hung, because the Jews did not have the authority to execute capital punishment. So he's not supposed to live to tell about it. But look, look what it says in verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Right? Just... Kind of something miraculously happened, and of course, he didn't have a pulse initially so that they thought that he was dead. And on the next, next day, Paul's one t- tough character, on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, not to receive some sort of uh, medical treatment. But when he got there, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So he went back to the place where he was persecuted. It says in in verse uh, 6, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe because he had uh, been persecuted in Iconium. So what's the point here? The point is, number one, for us as a church, we need to respond to the gospel, first of all, by winsomely proclaiming it. Now here, the term here where it says, preach the gospel, where it says here in verse 21, when they have preached the gospel, this word is very robust. It's not just proclaiming the gospel. There's another term for that in the Greek. But this word is a lot more uh, full uh, than that. It does not use the common word for preaching. Instead, a more comprehensive word, which in the Greek, and I'm just going to mention it because you'll see the relationship to some of the English derivatives that we have, uh, like evangel or evangelical or evangelism. Right? That's where we get the, the word euangelion for the good news. This word here is euangelizo. So in other words, when it says here that, that Paul was preaching the gospel, he was uangelizoing the community. He was gospeling the city. Now, why is this significant? Because oftentimes we tend to think when we preach Christ, it only happens from the pulpit. And, 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 and that's absolutely necessary. And you have, your church has a great reputation of that sort of solid, biblically, gospel-centric uh, preaching. And you should, be, you should be grateful for that. But preaching the gospel doesn't just happen here. It begins here, but it must extend to other places. So when you do a word study on this word here, uangelitso, or gospeling, or gospelizing, then you see that in the book of Acts, it describes Paul in the act of spreading the gospel through preaching in synagogue services, but also sharing in small group Bible studies, and also speaking out in the marketplace and leading discussions in rented halls, and also talking to people one-on-one. In other words, preaching the gospel is not just our responsibilities Uh, responsibility as preachers, but it is also your responsibility to proclaim Christ as one of the ways that you will respond to a culture that is opposed to the gospel or or a culture that is indifferent to it. Then the question is, then what is the content of gospel proclamation? Let me just pause here for a moment by saying, don't ever assume you fully understand the gospel. 
You know, people will come to our church and say, oh, I heard that this church preaches the gospel. And sometimes people assume, oh, you must preach the same sermon every Sunday. But I want to be at a church that really takes us through, uh, through uh, uh, deep discipleship. And I always respond by saying, oh, so are you suggesting that in order for us to understand the fullness of what God has done in interacting with humanity, that there is gospel plus something else? That gospel plus Something else is what's going to help us uh, to, to grow in the Christian faith. Because Apostle Paul seems to say gospel plus something else is not the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that the gospel is everything because the gospel isn't everything. Because if the gospel were everything, then the gospel wouldn't be the powerful um, news that the Bible describes for us. The gospel is not everything. However, we cannot assume that we understand the gospel. So there are three things that... that, uh, that that the book of Acts and Paul, through his preaching, will highlight about the gospel. Number one, as he proclaims Christ, as it says in Acts 8.5, number one, he emphasizes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Number two, he emphasizes the death or the atonement of Jesus. Number three, the resurrection. Number one, incarnation. Acts 9.20, it says that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was the promised messianic king and the son of God who came to earth as a servant in human form. Emphasizes the incarnation. Secondly, the atonement. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It emphasizes the atonement. Thirdly, in Acts 2.32... It emphasizes the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses. So the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. It's not coincidental that we emphasize uh, Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. And so commentators have noticed that everyone is called to gospelize our cities and our communities. I find it interesting when I have conversation with 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 some of my uh, skeptic friends, and I'm sure you've had this experience, and some of you who are here, you might say, this is one of the reasons why I have difficulty embracing the Christian faith. Because you always emphasize evangelizing or proselytizing or proclaiming the gospel. You're too preachy for me. Well, why can't we just talk about, uh, like, ideas and, and, and how you agree on your ideas and I, I have my own ideas? And we don't have to necessarily agree. We can uh, agree to disagree. But, but why do you have to evangelize? Why do you have to emphasize proselytizing? Why do you have to emphasize gospelizing? And I always respond by saying, um, it's not as though I, as a Christian, uh, that I gospelize and I evangelize, and you, as a skeptic, that you don't. As a matter of fact, you and I both gospelize, evangelize, and proselytize. The question is, what is the content of our evangelism? Because you're just trying to persuade me right now that your worldview, by saying that you don't like people who, who proselytize and who, who gospelize, you're saying that's your worldview, and you're trying to persuade me to believe that your worldview is superior than my worldview that says that we need to evangelize about Jesus Christ. We all gospelize. The question is, what is the content of our, of our evangelism? And by the way, we all worship as well. Even if you consider yourself a skeptic who's agnostic or you're not really sure where you are, you know that there are things that you worship because your heart has been enslaved by something in your life. So we're all worshipers. That's another fact. The question is, what do we worship? And so again, when it talks about proclaiming Christ, the book of Acts emphasizes the incarnation. Secondly, it emphasizes death, and thirdly, it emphasizes uh, the resurrection. And so if our preaching does not center on this content, then we're proclaiming, proclaiming something other than the gospel. We cannot redefine the gospel. We cannot redefine uh, what the Bible has to say about justification, for example. You see, the gospel is news rather than instruction. That is why we can't tell other people, hey, just be Jesus to them. Well, what are we saying when we say just be Jesus to them? Again, that's a good intent. People want to say, hey, just as Jesus cared for us and loved us, we ought to do the same. I, I, I understand the implication, but we don't want to tell people to be Jesus to other people. 
Because we cannot be Jesus to other people. If we could be Jesus to other people, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't need Jesus, who is the great Messiah, the Son of God who came into this world, laid down his life. According to the scriptures, he died for our sins. Historically, it happened. He is the great king who rose from the dead, who laid down his life, who atoned for our sins, and the resurrection is a receipt of the validation given us the Holy Spirit which is the deposit or the guarantee, the engagement ring, as the text says. All of these things happen in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is news, not instruction. Otherwise, I could tell others, uh, just simply, this is how you ought to live. But I'm telling them about a way that they can't live. And therefore, they need to meet the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the gospel is grace rather than merit. It is not about a self Righteousness is not about a work salvation. It is not about our own self-sufficiency in trying to establish and reaching a standard which we have elevated for ourselves, or even the Ten Commandments, for example. The Bible makes it very clear. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, the law of Moses in and of itself kills. It says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's not saying that the law of God is not good. It came from God. Of course it's good, but it was not intended to save. It was not intended to be our Savior. It was simply there to point us to something, primarily about our sin. And so Apostle Paul says that the letter kills. It is the ministry of condemnation. It is the ministry of death. It is fading, and it's not permanent. And then he goes on to say, but the Spirit gives life. The gospel, as opposed to the administration of Moses, is not a ministry of death, but it is the ministry of life through the Spirit. It is not a ministry of condemnation, but it is a ministry of righteousness. It is not something that is fading, that ends, that ended with Moses, but it is something that goes on forever, uh, an unsurpassing, great, glorious excellency of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And if the law were created by God to be our Savior, then why, this is how you would resolve it, then why did God give the Ten Commandments after he delivered the people out of Egypt? If the Ten Commandments were given so that it would be, it would be the, the mediation or it would be the Savior to help us to come before the presence of a holy God so that we would not receive judgment and his wrath, then why didn't God Deliver them out of, uh, why didn't God give them the Ten Commandments? Sorry. So God takes them out uh, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and says, uh, I want you to obey the Ten Commandments. And depending on how well you do, I will put you on probation. Six months later, if you do well, I will deliver you. If you don't do well, then, well, you're just going to stay there and being enslaved as slaves and you'll receive judgment forever. But he didn't do that. He delivered them out of Egypt Then he gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So then why did he give us the Ten Commandments? Well, he gave us the Ten Commandments because he wanted the Ten Commandments to be the uh, the evidence of our faith, not the means of our salvation. And so the gospel is grace rather than merit. We've got the law or any other standards that we have, and we can never achieve them perfectly. We fail utterly, and we need to be saved from sh- shaved, saved by sheer grace. And the gospel is the reversal of the weak and the strong. And so if, that, if those are uh, some of the things that we need to consider for the content of our proclamation of the gospel, then we also need to understand that there are hazards. And lastly, we need to understand that there is a context for gospel proclamation. When we look in chapter 13, Apostle Paul was preaching to Bible believers. Take a look at the sermon, uh, what's described there. In chapter 14, in our text, he is preaching to a, 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 a group of people that are made up of peasant polytheists. When we go to Mars Hill in Acts 17, he is communicating to an intellectual, sophisticated uh, pagans. In Acts 10, Christian elders. Acts 21, a hostile Jewish mob. Acts 24 through 26, governing elites with mixed cultural background. So what I'm trying to say is, is that when this gospelizing, when this preaching of the gospel happens, the, the content of the gospel, what we just described here, never ever changes. 
That can't. We can't redefine the gospel because we want it to be more relevant for our times. The content never changes, but the context does. The people to whom we are preaching change. The citation of their authority uh, uh, figures changes. The emotion, the style, the vocabulary, all of these things change. And so here's just a little suggestion. I would say for a post-Christian, late-modern, post-church culture such as Hingham or the great megapolis of Boston, you need to understand that there is a certain prevailing cultural story of our times, of our culture. We need to understand that culture and to be able to winsomely and effectively preach the gospel. I think there are a few things that you need to do. This is just an approach, not the content of the gospel, an approach. Lam Insani, the great uh, uh, Senegalian uh, uh, scholar from Africa. Um, no, actually, he's not from Senegal. He's from uh, Banjur, or Gambia. But Gambian African scholar who teaches at Yale, this is what he says. When we are trying to confront a particular cultural idea, this is what we need to do. We need to, en- we need to engage it, first of all, enter into the story, the cultural narrative, and then challenge the narrative, and then retell the story with the gospel. You see, for us, oftentimes we don't have great amount of credibility when we preach or gospelize our city and our friends. Why? Because we don't enter into their worldview, we don't learn about their cultural story, we don't try to find the point of reference, and we simply challenge. Now again, I am not saying that we ought not to challenge. Absolutely, the worldview must be challenged, the idols of the worldview. We need to deconstruct the cultural narrative. But we need to do it by way of finding a point of reference and entering into the person's story, then deconstructing it, then reconstructing it with the story of the gospel, which is much more beautiful and powerful. Deep inside, when people are longing for insatiable, unfillable desires, that's what they're really looking for. I was saying uh, in the the Bible study that I love the quote from uh, Leonard Bernstein, the great pianist and composer, who was a secular a Jewish atheist, and, and this is what he says. He's, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, summarize what he said, and, and you'll see right away, you'll evaluate that, and you'll say, yeah, Bernstein, even though he doesn't believe in a higher God or a higher being, that he's a worshiper. Because what he said was, when you listen to music, and you anticipate and hear a note, that is absolutely the only possible note that can follow the previous note, then you can be certain you're listening to Beethoven. All these other musical clowns like Tchaikovsky and the Ravels and the Chopins, yeah, they have some gifts, but, but they're not like Beethoven. When you listen to a note that is the perfect note that follows the previous note, then you can be certain it is Beethoven. It's like understanding the things of heaven. He had no other reference than to make a cosmic reference. Because, friends, when you hear when you hear an echo, you must assume that there must be the source of that sound. If you smell a scent, you must assume there's a flower behind the scent. This is what C.S. Lewis talks about in The Mind Awake. If there are certain things in this world that we cannot explain, then we must know that we've been built for another world. And so, again... When we look at the context, we need to under, enter into a person's worldview and to know that the longing that they have for beauty, the longing that they have for happiness, the longing for self-fulfillment, all of these things ultimately point, point to a cosmic source because we've been created for another world. So these are the things that we need to consider as we uh, proclaim uh, the gospel uh, winsomely. Secondly, We need to holistically live the gospel in the context of community. Let's look here in verses 21 and following. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So we need to holistically live the gospel. If we are proclaiming the gospel, we must live the gospel. Now, living the gospel is not the gospel itself. We need to be certain that we can separate the results 
of the gospel, which are absolutely necessary, the entailments of the gospel, which are absolutely necessary, but we need to make sure that we separate that from the content of the gospel itself. Otherwise, we can go around and say, hey, okay, let's go here, help some people do this, help marginalize people, all these things which are the entailments or the results of the, an understanding of the gospel. But if we call that the gospel itself, then we are dismissing the real content of the gospel. But nevertheless, I need to make that distinction. But nevertheless, if we are gospel-believing people because we have heard the proclamation of the preaching of the gospel and the content of the gospel, then it must absolutely shape our lives and our community, and therefore we must live uh, the gospel in the context of community. The gospel creates and the gospel shapes our community. So what does this look like? Well, it is a paradoxical kingliness. It is radically different than the values of this world. The values of the world will tell you this is how you're supposed to understand status, position, wealth, power. If you have it, accumulate it and hold on to it. And if there are people below you, then they're below you. And you treat them accordingly. If they're above you, then you need to do everything you can to kind of bring them down and so that you can uh, usurp their authority. But whatever the case might be, it is ultimately a posture of the human heart that is frail, fallen, and broken, and sinful that tells us that it's all about self-fulfillment. Everything is done in a mercenary way out of one's self-interest. But the gospel speaks into that and says, no, it's not supposed to be done out of self-interest. It's actually supposed to be done out of an understanding that God has shown interest to us when we were children of wrath sons and daughters of disobedience, that he laid down his life for us through the incarnation, ultimately fulfilled in the work on the cross and validated through the resurrection. If this is the way he has related to us, then it ought to affect the way we relate to others. And so what did he do? He proclaimed it, and then he made many disciples. And then he said that he went back in order to strengthen them in their souls and also to encourage them with the content of their faith to continue in the faith, saying that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's a paradoxical life of being concerned about strengthening the other individual who might be weak, encouraging somebody who might be in despair, being able to look beyond myself to the needs of others. How's that possible? And how's that possible? You see, the only way that this would happen if if there's a point of reference for our lives, a point of reference that's very, very paradoxical. It's very upside down. It is very um, counterintuitive. If some of you, um, those of you who are married, and and, uh, and, and if you were to go and see your pastor and and, uh, ask him for pastoral counseling, and both of you are willing to come, that's a good start, by the way. If both of you show up, that's a good start. Um, and what's going to happen? If he gives you an opportunity to open up and to share what's on your mind, the husband will begin by saying, Pastor, you really need to help us. We have a lot of problems in our marriage, and, and the fundamental problem in this marriage is me. I'm the problem in this marriage. I haven't, I haven't provided counseling for, uh, for, for many uh, couples like that who are willing to come and take ownership of their own stuff. It's usually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard, but I just can't handle this anymore. She, so the point of reference is always the other person. This, this, is, the, this is the reason why when I tell people to pray in small groups, pray in the first person singular. Don't pray in the third person and definitely not in the second person, plural. In some contexts in corporate worship, of course, that's helpful. But you can hide behind your second person, plural, prayers. We. And never take ownership of the stuff that's going on in your own heart. You know, I've read some very helpful uh, uh, counselors, and, and they make this point all the time. They say there's a fundamental difference between the cause of your sin and the occasion for your sin. Friends, the occasion for sin and the problem in your marriage might be your husband because he's doing some stupid things and being very annoying. I'm not minimizing that. 
Okay, I'm not justifying his annoyance. But that's different than the cause of your sin. You see, the fundamental problem in your marriage right now is you. You're the, you're the primary obstacle in your marriage. So rather than getting defensive and blame shifting, which is something that we do extremely well, we need to take ownership. How are we going to take ownership for us to be concerned about the other person's interest before my own? Simply because we, the Bible says, you need to be selfless. Stop being selfish. Yes, the Bible has commandments like that, to die to yourself and so on. But the only way that your heart will be so shaped to be able to live a life where your affections are stirred by that truth is for you to know, as Piper, John Piper will say, white-hot affections. You know, that's Piperian language. White-hot affections. How are you going to have the white-hot affections? It's when the gospel of grace through the preaching of the word, is mediated into your heart where your affections are stirred as the Holy Spirit takes the promises of of the things of Scripture, reminding you of the content of the gospel, that Jesus Christ himself, who was in the very form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid down his life, became nothing in the form of a human being, and died even to the point of death. When you know that he himself was willing to lay down his life. When he was engaged in a radical, cosmic, self-donating love for people who, don't, who didn't deserve it. That is going to create within your heart a paradoxical life that stirs your affections. Where the death of Christ creates an inside-out community, you'll no longer be so concerned about external ordinances, the way you appear to other people, presenting yourself as very, very presentable, but you will be more concerned about the radical interior radiance of the work of the gospel. That's not outside-in, but that's inside-out. As the Spirit comes and changes you, as it brings to your understanding of the atoning work of Christ, And the incarnating of Christ creates an upside-down community where we're willing to empty ourselves for one another, responding to the radical, self-giving picture of Jesus. Or the resurrecting power of Christ, the forward-back community. And therefore, it creates this overhauling effect within the church. The South Shore Baptist Church will be known. I don't know your church well enough, but I'm... I'm sure it is known for these things. But it will cultivate in the life of your church a greater affirming, sharing, serving posture where you're willing to engage in one-way forgiving without expecting anything in return, that you're willing to be concerned about the other person's interests rather than being mercenary, that it will radically change the way you do ministry and life. Because the technical term here where it says being strengthened and encouraged, strengthening and encouraging, it shows up in Acts 9 and also in Acts 15. This is a technical term that Luke uses to refer to building people up in their faith, that will be the doctrines and the content of the gospel, but also congregating people. It's interesting. When he goes into a city, it talks about gospelizing the city, preaching the content of the gospel. Then it talks about within the context of the community, making disciples and the numbers growing. And then thirdly, it says that he appointed elders and they became a particular church. They became an organized church and they kept on planting. This was the pattern. Go into a city, preach to non-Christians. They get converted, make disciples, encourage them in the faith, strengthen them in the faith, and to congregate together and make them an entity and and an organized community known as a church. And then we plant churches. We appoint elders, and then Paul leaves. I mean, mean, granted that Paul was Paul, uh, a great uh, church planner par excellence, and we're just ordinary uh, people, but this was the model that we see over and over again uh, in in the book of Acts. And then lastly, and quickly, then what is the strategic extending of the gospel? There's the proclaiming of the gospel, There is the living of the gospel and thoroughly extending the gospel strategically. Let's look here in verse 23. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
strategically extending this gospel, which you have received, which you have cultivated through discipleship and through the strengthening and the encouraging of living out by faith and understanding the content and doctrines of the gospel and also congregating together as a church. Is it quite possible that God is encouraging you, which you have done so beautifully already, to continue to extend strategically the gospel, not only abroad, but here locally? I think so. Because what I find interesting here is is that that's what leadership training is about. When they appointed elders, it was essentially planning a church. Because you don't appoint leaders and, and have elders and pastors who can preach and for you to just leave it unless it's been particularized, it's been kind of brought together. There's been some le- level of governance. See, when we look at the book of Acts, there's so many things that we draw out. Again, patterns, corporate worship, evangelism, um, helping the poor, right? Uh, the community of goods, uh, uh, pooling all of your resources uh, together and sharing with those people who are in need, right? Acts chapter 2. The only counsel I would have given at that particular time is don't cut off the source of, uh, of production, right? That's not a good way to do business because you just put everything into the pot and then where is the other stuff going to come? So you wanted to continually prime the pump and to make sure that there is a source of production that will continue to give and that you will be able to uh, have good return on your investment. But anyways, these were all the things that they did. But the one thing that we tend to leave out, besides the catechesis and the Christian education, the corporate worship and, the, and prayer and fasting and these sorts of things, we tend to leave out church planning. But it is, a, it is the fabric and the DNA of the work of the Spirit through the Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts. That it wasn't something that was kind of unnatural. It's not something that kind of happened by accident, episodic, but it was something that was built into the fabric of what they did. Just as for you, you're so committed to overseas missions that you have a separate budget for that. I'm very encouraged. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my elders, I say, you know what, I think we need to do something and uh, have people ask people to give more uh, on top of everything that they're giving. But what about having a burden for church planning? I don't think that overseas missions and local ministry, that these things are in contradistinction to one another. You need to do both. Why? Because just as people need to hear about the gospel in in Sudan, they also need to hear the gospel here in Pembroke and Hingham and whatever, whatever other neighborhoods that you have here. Trust me, in this culture here in New England, people do not know the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. Why don't you why do why do I hear from my friends all the time? of others who want to come and plant churches in New England. They they view New England like a foreign country. (laughs) And they ought to. It is very foreign. But this is the beautiful place where God has placed us. And so the gospel community raises up leaders, lay ministry dynamic, deacons, and uh, and the like, and is calling us to to be radically different uh, in our strategy and everything that we're doing uh, as a church. Um, Let me say a couple of things and end here. Gospel communities reproduce gospel communities. It says in Titus 1.5, when Paul went into a city, he planted uh, a church and appointed elders. That's what he did. He went into a city, he went into a community, this is what he did. The gospel produces gospel communities. Gospel communities reproduce other gospel communities. Don't you want your neighboring uh, communities to know all the beautiful things that you are hearing and participating in here at South Shore Baptist? Right? This is the reason why you support missionaries, and rightfully so. Don't you want others? I mean, it would be great if they could all come here, right? And you continue to expand. You've got a pretty large parking lot there, I I noticed. Just keep building out. But even then, you will never be able to reach the hundreds of thousands of people in this area. So how do you do that? Well, multiplication is always more effective than addition. You need to plant other churches. Continue to have a vision, which I believe that your leadership has for this sort of work, to be movement-minded not just concerned about our own concerns. And, and I'm not saying that, that all of a sudden the, the leadership is going to abandon the concerns for your children and the youth group and so on, but it's a lot more than that, a lot more than what just this church can do. We must collaboratively work with other churches that are committed uh, to uh, the gospel. So what can cause us to proclaim the gospel in a difficult place such as this? 
knowing that the gospel is grounded in the hazardous, difficult cross work of Christ, who bore the ultimate suffering to achieve salvation for us. He came in the incarnation. He did not commute from heaven. What can cause our community to be radically self-giving? To know that Christ gave his all to purchase the church. He did not tithe his blood. He gave of himself completely, freely of all of his resources. That he was willing to give up all of his riches to come to a flawed and fallen community and humanity and to be able to give that poor community his riches so that we who are poor might become rich. What can cause us to, be, cause us to sacrificially extend the gospel through the investment of being able to willing to give leaders, gifts, resources, money, control away through church planning? And I was doing this, um, God has a sense of humor, because I was doing this uh, in the Bible study earlier, Jeremy. And, uh, and then I get a text uh, from uh, one of the administrators from our other campus. And evidently, a lot of people left the Boston campus, where I am, to worship over there. Now, I don't know what this means, whether they're going there to support our full-time campus pastor or whether they're saying, you know, um was helpful, but uh, I think I'm going to move on from there. And for a moment, I caught my heart and saying, I got to figure out exactly what the breakdown was here. Or even thinking, although I didn't think that, but I'm thinking that now, what if, what if, what if one of my top donors went there? There's a lot of risk involved. You have to give up control, power, gifts, people, resources. But God is calling us not only to be a gospel-believing community, but a gospel shape that we're willing to let go of our money. This is what I say about money all the time to people. Our culture tells us that we ought to be radically stingy with our money, but to be promiscuous with our bodies. But the gospel tells us that we need to be radically promiscuous uh, with our money, but stingy with our bodies to be used only within the context of a covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife in a marriage relationship. See, the gospel compels us by the love of God to be radically generous. And how can this happen? Well, I think this is the way it happens. You see, when we talk about proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel, extending the gospel, we're talking about an expression of communication, expression of pastoral care, and leadership vision. You see, when you look at the three offices of the Messiah, Jesus was called to be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. Even though all of these other prophets came and they talked about the the, the content of the gospel, of the promises of God, only Jesus Christ as the perfect and better prophet comes not only to give the content of the gospel, but to actually talk about the content which was himself. Not only is he the greater priest who came and sacrificed offerings before the presence of God, but he himself was the offering. The Lamb of God who was slain who takes away the sin of the world. Not only that, but he was the perfect king. The book of Judges actually ends by saying, the very last verse in the book of Judges, this is the reason why you need to interpret the Bible in the one-story plot line of God, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, the new heavens and the new earth, that you can't look at the Bible and read it atomistically. Just kind of say, okay, what does this point mean here? But that text must be situated within the one-story plot line of God's narrative of redemption. And so what what do we uh, find uh, there in that one story, a plot line, is that it says in the book of Judges, it says, there was no king at that particular time, and people lived any which they wanted, any which way they wanted. What's the point of the book of Judges? Well, the point of the book of Judges is saying there were judges, but no one who was good enough. They didn't have kings. The monarchy in, the, in Israelite history showed that there, there were kings, but no one good enough. Not a good enough prophet or, or a priest that could completely get it all done. That's why they had Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, every year. There wasn't a sacrifice that was perfect enough. A story that was completed. A symbol that was completely fulfilled. 
a law that was completely received and obeyed, a theme that was completely resolved, a type that brought an end to everything until Jesus came, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, in himself bring about a complete, resolved, fulfilled, completed answer in himself. And therefore, if he is leading us through this proclamation of the good news, if he is leading us through his entire life of sacrifice, which is not just mere, a, a mere example, but the power that generates your affections, and leading us in the already and not yet kingdom, then I believe that there's great hope for, for South Shore Baptist Church. I really do. Your church has been blessed with a lot, a lot more than you know. And I believe that, that God is calling you, not for power accumulation, but for power distribution. Not for resource accumulation, but resource donating and giving. Strategically, not just kind of being bad stewards and just wasting it, but for church planning. That other communities, other South Shore Baptist communities, and I haven't spoken to your pastor about this, so it's not like, you know, he's getting something into me and I'm getting it out for you. Another South Shore Baptist church in another location besides Hingham. How about that? That would be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? Exciting indeed. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, this church is in very able hands with a pastor who has a great vision for you, who desires to submit to your will, who wants to lead these people well. Lord, if it is your will to create other campuses and sites, to have other South Shore Baptist communities, not just meeting in this building, but in other places throughout the South Shore area, then I pray that you would give them that burden. If that's not your burden, then give them a burden for church planning for them to continue to be the kind of missional church that you have created them to be. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness for this church. I'm grateful that I can count them my friends. I'm grateful that I can work collaboratively with all the work that you've already done here so faithfully. Your name and your acclaim is what we desire to proclaim. Now and forever and to the ends of the earth. Amen.